Last week, we started chapter 15, uh, and we will be taking up the rest of the chapter this week, uh, not this, well, this morning. Uh, but before we do that, let me just bring everybody to the same page. Let's just do a quick review. So last week is about music, and it's about singing, and it's about the songs that you see in the beginning of chapter 15. I said that the songs of this, uh, the song that we saw is a song of praise, uh, and it's not merely just voicing out the praises to God, uh, but God uh, designed us or designed praise as something that we um, uh, that erupt in the hearts of those who believe by faith and value what they see. It erupts, praise erupts as a completion of our joy. Remember, I said this last week. Um, so praise is not just us singing praise. It's, it's really for us. Yeah, it, it's for God. Yeah, praise God. But God designed it for us to complete our joy. Uh, that's what we see in the song that the Israelites sang at the beginning of chapter 15. What did the Israelite, What were they singing about? They were singing about God's greatness, right? And how God saved them from the Egyptians and worshipped and praised Him uh, through the song after they crossed the Red Sea. Uh, I actually watched Prince of Egypt again yesterday, uh, the cartoon, okay? And while I'm watching it, I'm, oh, I'm like, man, that movie is all about Moses. Have you, have you seen that movie? It's all about Moses. Uh, but this, when you read the song and you read the whole Exodus, it's not about Moses. Uh, the Israelites weren't rejoicing for Moses. They weren't praising Moses. They were praising God. That's the lyrics display that, right? They were so joyful that they sang. What did they sing about? They sang about God's past victories. They sang about how God defeated the horse and the rider. And again, this is to say that God has already won. He's won over the agent and instrument of Israel's slavery. That's what they were singing about. And not only that, the Israelites sang about uh, uh, God's future victories, right? Uh, in the second half of the song. Uh, and again, this is like a prophecy, a glimpse of what God will do for the Israelites in order to fulfill his promise to bring them to the promised land. That's, that's what they sang about. They sang about God's goodness. They didn't sing about the miracle. They sang about, they sang about God. So um, this morning, we're going to move forward in our journey through the book as we look at this next part of the Israelites moving forward in their journey through the wilderness. So let me read to you again, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So after their little praise and worship party by the sea, after crossing the Red Sea, they moved on, right? They moved on en route to the promised land. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading this, I always remember, I always go back to 1988, September 1988, when we first migrated to Canada. Uh, you guys migrated in 88? Anybody, anybody here? Auntie Jelly? Yo, June. So we were here, you were here before? Okay. You too? 88? Oh. Someone has been here for a long time. But I remember that day. I remember that time. I was 12 years old when I first, first came here in 88. Um, and I was so excited, right? I was anticipating. It's the first time I, I got out of the Philippines. 
That's the first time I left the province, like Luzon. I've been there all my life, 12 years. So I was so excited. And there's a lot of anticipation, right? You want to know what's, what's it like in Canada? Feel like I'm like I'm I'm like from the from the Stone Ages, and I'm going to the from the Flintstones. I'm going to the Jetsons. You know, uh, <laughs> that's what it felt like because that's the first experience, right? Um, I, I I can see the Israelites kind of feeling that way now. They're out of Egypt now, they're looking forward to the Promised Land. They probably thought it was a walk in the park, right? Because when I first got here, I felt the same way, right? I was so excited. I thought it was like a vacation. A lot of first-time experiences for me back then. First time on a plane. First time in another country. First time feeling cold. Right? Philippines, you never. The coldest there is like plus 15. I didn't even know about temperature within the Philippines. I just know hot and rain. That's it. They're, they're, I don't know Celsius. I don't know any of that stuff. We don't measure the temperature there. We don't look at the weather like we do here. What's the weather like outside? What should I wear? It's not like that. There, it's like, should I bring an umbrella? Or <laughs> that was it. So that's a lot of first time. The first few weeks for me were was fun, right? I get here. I'm 12 years old. Um, um, they gave me, I remember when we first got here, they gave me a piece of chicken for, my, like, for myself, just for me. I didn't have to share it with everybody else. And it's like, wow. Because in the Philippines, you have to share everything. I told that story before, like even the chocolate bar, the Hershey chocolate bar, we had to share. We get one letter each. It was me and my brother. So Hershey has how many letters? H-E-R-S-H-E-Y-S. Hershey's, right? Eight. So me and my brother got one letter each. H-E. So where did the six pieces go? My dad, my dad took it off. <laughs> it has to. Nobody else ate chocolate, it's just us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the first week was fun. I had my first chicken by myself. I had a whole Hershey bar to myself. Uh, a lot of fun, like a vacation. Then after a few weeks, reality sets in, right? That's how it is when you go on vacation, right? Even right now, when you go back to the Philippines, first few weeks, yeah, yeah. You stay there, you pass three weeks, and you're like living there again, and it's not a vacation anymore, right? That's what happened here. When I first came here, like a vacation, then reality sets in. Now I had to go to school. It was September when I came in, so I was school. So I was registered for school. I can remember the first time I went to school. I left, I left the Philippines. I was in grade six. When I got here, they put me in grade six. And it was fine. It was good because the school was near the, near the place where we were living in. So I just had to walk to school. No problem. And grade six to me was easy. No problem. Because in the Philippines, the... Um, uh, curriculum is ad ahead. It's advanced, right? So when I got here, I already know all this. Multiplication tables, I already know all that. Yeah. Um, so what they did to me was when they saw that, they gave me a test to see where I was at. And I passed. So that means I get to move to grade 7. So grade 7 is like high school here. I had to go to a different school. I lived in Markham and Eglinton. And the grade 7 school, Bliss Carmen, was on Kingston. And Markham. Is that right? Kingston and Markham? Or is that parallel? No, that's right. Kingston, Markham. So I had to take a bus, two buses, transfer bus. So I was, um, back in those days, uh, my, my English was, right? 
he didn't speak English that much. So my English sucked, right? And I wasn't confident in speaking. So I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to just be by myself. So what happened was when they moved me to um, in school, uh, the guidance counselor picked me up from my grade 6 school and brought me to my grade 7 school. So that car ride to me was like scary. I don't know this person. I don't want to speak to this person. <laughs> I just want to just I just want to go to school. Just leave me alone in grade 6. So that's where I, I was started. So a guidance counselor picked me up, then brought me to school, showed me how to get there on uh, using the bus. Um, and again, my English was not so good. So I, that's one of my biggest fears was having to go into the bus and not know where to go. And I had to ask the bus driver a question. I don't know how to, I don't know. I don't know how should I ask? Like, I don't know. In the Philippines, it's all different, right? Uh, you know, if you translate, if you can't translate like Tagalog straight to English. It's, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? So that was one of my biggest fears. So uh, I got pulled out of class. So imagine this. I was 12 years old. I would start from one school, got comfortable for a couple of days, got pulled up out of class. Now I had to ride with a stranger to the new school and then have to relearn the new school schedule. In grade 7, you have lockers and, you know, homeroom and all this stuff. I didn't know any of that. There was none of that in the Philippines. Um, daily routine had to change because I had to take the bus now to school instead of just walking. So I had a lot of fear. I was so scared to the point where uh, my first day going to grade 7, I cried to my mom and dad the night after school. I'm like, please don't send me back there. I don't want to go through all that stress. I have to take the bus and talk to people. And No, I just want to stay in grade six but if you know my parents not gonna happen i don't care if you have to crawl to school you go to grade seven years you go ahead you go are you gonna come with me no you go by yourself <laughs> so i had to go i had to get over it and move forward so imagine the israelites in our story went went through a similar situation so coming from Egypt, they're now free people, right? Crossing the Red Sea, free people. They even have a worship session by the sea. And then if you read the text, look at the text. Look, at how, look how it reads in the ESV. 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. See that? Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. That, that word made Israel hit me right away. What, what, what does it sound like to you? felt like they had to force them out, right? Made. He made them set out. So I looked up. If, if you run into anything like that, look up the original word, the word, original word for that. It's helpful to understand your Bible. So the original Hebrew word used for that is a phrase that made Israel move out. There was one word used for that. Word is Nasa. Nasa, which literally means to pull out or to uproot. Okay, the example that they used in the, um, the website that I saw was, it's like pulling out tent pegs. You know tent pegs? The little nails that you put on the ground to hold up tents. It's like pulling those out or pulling gate posts. 
So Moses, that's what he was doing. He was doing. He was pulling out the Israelites. Okay, it drew my attention because the Israelites have a history of just settling. When they first went to Egypt, anybody know their Sunday school? Anybody know their history? When Israelites went to Egypt, why, what, what was the reason why they ended up there? They, first of all, they, they, the, the brothers threw Joseph out, right? And Joseph became prince of Egypt. and Well, not prince of Egypt, but one of the high-ranking officers in Egypt. And then there was a famine. And the Israelite, the, the, the rest of Israel's son just didn't know where to go, didn't have food. And then, then they found out, oh, Egypt had food. And they, so they went to Egypt. They found out it was Joseph who was taking care of the food. And they ended up all going there. Now, they weren't supposed to stay there. They were supposed to just go there as a lifeboat to overcome or to just let the famine pass by. And then they were supposed to move forward and go to the promised land. But what happened in the beginning of Exodus? What does it say? They prospered there. They became fruitful and they multiplied in Egypt. They stayed there. They weren't supposed to stay, but they stayed for 400 some odd years. And then you know the history, right? After Pharaoh changed, Pharaoh after Pharaoh changed, they forgot about Joseph. They forgot who these Israelites were. Then all of a sudden, these Israelites became a menace. And they, they became enslaved. So, but they weren't supposed to stay there is the point. Uh, they weren't supposed to stay there. And so if you go back to our story, I believe that the emphasis placed on Moses having to pull them out or to uproot the Israelites is because they have a tendency for that. Okay? They have a tendency to settle. Move forward. Fast forward to the New Testament. In the book of Acts, if you guys read the book of Acts, this is where the church was born. Okay? What happened in the book of Acts, when the church was born, and before the church was born, the command for them was what? What did Jesus command them? Great commission. Go. Make disciples of all nations. But wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Remember that part? Don't just go. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So they did. They waited in the upper room. Tongues of fire came. And after that, Peter pre uh, preached. And then uh, it was Pentecost, so people were there and they heard it. When they, people heard the preaching, some of them became Christians. And then a church was established in Jerusalem, right? But were they, it, was that the mission? No. Yeah, good, it's good. You have a church, but you're supposed to go, keep going. But they didn't. They settled in Jerusalem to the point where the church in, the, in Jerusalem, some people are saying, or some scholars are saying that the church in Jerusalem grew to about 20,000 people. It grew that big. They never left. <laughs> they were supposed to leave. They were supposed to go. So what did God do? No, you're not supposed to stay here. So God, um, in his wisdom, right, uh, made a way to uproot them. How was the church uprooted the church in Jerusalem, how were they uprooted and dispersed? Through, if you know your, your Bible, through the stoning of Stephen. That's what happened. God allowed Stephen to be stoned. And in that, we were introduced to another character. His name was Saul. He was supposed to go hunt these people down, all these Christians. He was supposed to hunt them down uh, because they weren't supposed to be. They were talking blasphemy. 
right? So Saul became their persecutor, and the church dispersed. But again, the point is, the Israelites have this history of just settling, that they have to be uprooted. Um, and if you can imagine, like, if I was an Israelite, and I was just past the Red Sea, you saw God, and you're by the sea, it'd be nice to stay there. <laughs> but God said no. We have to move forward, right? We have to move forward. So when we look at that, and I look at that, uh, we all have that tendency, right? When things are comfortable and okay, we tend to stick around. We tend to stagnate and not move forward. Now, for a lot of us here, as far as immigrating is concerned, that's not what we did. Some of us here have good lives in the Philippines, right? Some of us are rich in the Philippines. <laughs> so, all of us are rich in the Philippines. But you still decided to move. For a lot of parents, the reason is because I want my kids to have a better future. But there's always a challenge in moving. There's always a challenge when there's a change in scenery, right? That's why we don't move. That's why we have a tendency to stick around. That's why we have a tendency to get comfortable and just stay and and plant roots wherever we're at. Uh, there's a phrase in Tagalog that I always hear being thrown around. It's yung, uh, the phrase is, Ayos na yan? Ayos na yan? Ayos na yan? Okay na yan? Right? It means it's, it's okay. It's enough. Let's just, that's fine. It's all good. We're good. Let's just stay where we're at. There's a saying in English that says, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. It's definitely good when it comes to our contentment, when it comes to the things of this earth. If you say, okay na yan. Ayos na ako sa sinigang. Okay na ako sa ganito. I don't need steak. That's fine. It's good. As far as your contentment on earth is concerned. I'm okay with one pair of shoes. All I need is one. That's fine. It's okay. But when it comes to our relationship with God, if you have one, never just okay. Right? God created us and saved us so that our hunger and desire for Him will always be expanding, always growing. If that's not happening to you, question yourself. Do I have a relationship with God? Do I know who God is? If your hunger for Him, your desire for Him is not expanding and you're not growing, because spiritually, when it comes to our relationship with God, we're not called to settle. We are called to always want more. Our end goal as Christians is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our Canaan, so to speak. That's our promised land, to become like Christ. That's where all Christians are headed. There is no Christian that is a true Christian that's not headed towards that. If you're not growing to become more and more like Christ in each and every day of your life, in the way you live, then maybe you're not headed towards Canaan. Maybe you're headed somewhere else. Maybe you're headed back to Egypt, right? And my job and the job of this church is to always keep us moving in that direction, the direction of growth in faith. My job is to always try to show you in my preaching and the teaching and the way I live my life, imperfect, imperfect as it may be. My job is always to reveal to you more and more of who God is in order to uproot you from being stagnant in your faith journey. That's why we always wake up people who are asleep. 
Because when you're sleeping, you're stagnant. You're not moving. In the Bible, when you're, when you're asleep, you're dead. <laughs> right? That's why we always do that, because you can't just stay there. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. If you say you're a Christian, you have to keep moving forward. Moses made sure that Israel moved forward. He made them move out from the Red Sea. He uprooted the Israelites on their way to the promised land. Now, what do we see next? What happens next? 23 and 24. Can you guys read it? Exodus 15. Okay, so Moses made them move forward. Now, usually when you move forward, when you uproot, okay, when you immigrate, just like us, all of us, there usually, it usually comes with challenges, right? I'm sure we all experience that. Uh, if you change jobs, you know, you, you move homes, there's always a challenge. But what I want us to notice here is that God uses all these experiences, good and bad, to further sanctify us. The uprooting that's going on here is not just a physical uprooting, moving from one place to another. But God is also uprooting things that are inside of the Israelites that could be hindering their growth in their faith. Right? He's trying to reveal to them something that's in them that's stopping them from moving forward when it comes to their growth in faith. Right? So in other words, God's leading them through the desert Right? It's another training tool that God uses in order to strengthen the faith of the Israelites. And a lot of times, training is a bitter experience. Okay? So when we talk about training, okay, when you think about training, when, when I thought about training, I was thinking about this, uh, I, I put it in, I think about it in the physical sense. Who here trains physically? Yeah, nobody. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if you're going to get this illustration then I should change the illustration who here sleeps and eats and doesn't do anything everybody <laughs> so usually when you train you it's a process where you go through uh, to get your body used to uh, exerting a certain t uh, amount of effort that's when you train it's getting your body used to exerting a certain amount of effort or to get your body used to coping with certain situations when you train, okay? So uh, I train, okay? Uh, I, I do jump rope, okay? Everybody knows, everybody knows this, right? That's how I train. I do jump rope and weight training, right? Now with jump rope, you need to, first of all, when you start jump roping, I don't know if you guys have anybody, not the jump rope that we do in the Philippines, right? The, with, with the rubber bands? Not, no. Not, <laughs> the boxer jump. When you, you see boxers do it, Pacquiao does it. They all do it. Why do they do it? To, right, to strengthen their cardio efficiency, whatever, their endurance, whatever. So when you jump rope, that's the first uh, experience of jump roping. When you start jump roping, you feel like you're going to die. Because it's hard. Right? And you look at the clock, you're like, oh, man, I must be jump roping for like 10 minutes. You look at it, it's like 10 seconds. Because it's so hard. But the more you get used to it, the longer you can last jump roping. 
That's training. You're getting your body used to a certain exertion of effort. Right? Weight training, same thing. I start, you start lifting weights, uh, you, you start light. So you can, you'll be able to lift it. And then, oh, it's easy now. So let's add more weight. Progressive loading, it's called. You add more weight, you add more weight, you add more weight. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to improve yourself, right? You're trying to get stronger. You're trying to get more fit. That's what you're trying to do. Now, um, the body, the, the way God designed the body, is that after it, uh, it experiences the, the exertion of effort, it gets used to it after a while. That's why after a while, it's easy, right? So if, if your goal is to get stronger, uh, and then you start feeling that your training is not, you know, you're not exerting as much effort, you're supposed to level up <laughs> your training. You're supposed to look for ways to make it harder on yourself. Uh, some of you are looking at me like, why would you do that? <laughs> you do that because you want to improve. Right? If you don't want to improve, then just, yeah, just sit here. Don't do anything. Don't, don't change. Don't move forward. Right? But if you want to grow, you want to improve, you do that. Oh, starting to get easy. Let's, let's add more. Let's add more. Go biking. Do this. Do that. Start running. Whatever. Right? But you keep adding more to it if you want to get fit. Otherwise, all that happens is you're just going to plateau. You know what plateau means? And you just stay the way you are. Right? Now, God doesn't want the Israelites to plateau. He could have easily just have them just settle. At the edge of the Red Sea. It would have been fine. They could have been fishermen. Right? But God didn't want them to plateau. He doesn't want them to um, once again settle. He wants them to continue the journey to the promised land. So he, he had Moses uproot them. But when you get uprooted, it's hard. Obviously. Right? I imagine the first three days of the journey were already hard. I know they came from slavery. I know they came from hard work. But it's different. It's walking through the desert. And this time, you have a different mentality because you're free now. So when you have that mentality, you think, oh, man, this better be easy because I'm free. It can't be hard. But it must have been after three days, right? So um, God training them by uprooting them. But God didn't stop there. God led them to bitter water. So after three days, no water. All they had was, all they had was crackers, unleavened bread. All they had was sky flakes. That's all they had. No fresh water. You can't drink seawater. Right? You die if you drink seawater. So they had no fresh water. In the desert, no rain. Three days, no water. Eating sky flakes. Have you ever ate sky flakes? A lot of it. Your mouth goes dry. This is unleavened. So imagine that. No water. And then God says, oh, you want water? Go to Mara. <laughs> Mara, that place Mara, the name of that, the meaning of that name Mara is bitter. <laughs> so he led them to bitter water. So what was God trying to do there? God, again, it gets easier. You're not going to grow. So God, not only approved of them, he led them to bitter water to increase the intensity of their training. What are they trying to train? What are they trying to strengthen? Their faith. 
right? So God led them to bitter water. And when God led them to bitter water, he's not just training them as far as their faith is concerned. He's also showing them that the bitterness that was in the water was also in them. Okay? Let's look at it. Uh, Exodus 15, 24. You guys read it again. What shall we drink? Grumbling already. God led the Israelites to bitter water to show them that they still had something in them, in their hearts, in their souls, because of their lack of faith. And it showed up in their grumbling. So the first hint of hardship, grumbling shows up. And again, grumbling is a symptom. It's not the disease. Okay? That's just a symptom of the disease. So what's the disease? Ultimately, is a lack of faith. Symptom? Grumble. Okay, we're going to get into this later on. So, bato bato sa langit. <laughs> I know, a lot of people grumble. I grumble a lot. But we're going to listen. listen. If you listen, you'll probably grumble after you listen to So, <laughs> Let me read you this comment. Riken comments this. What we suffer may be bitter in itself, but however bitter it is, it does not need to make us bitter. The problem at Mara was not the water, bitter though it was, but the bitterness in the hearts of God's people. Uh, John Calvin pointed out that God might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their hearts. Bitterness does not come in the outward circumstance, but in the inward response. We are called not to complain but to believe in the goodness of God, even when he leads us to bitter waters. So, instead of gratitude, the internal response to the bitterness of the water of the Israelites was what? Grumbling. Instead of being grateful, they grumbled. Now, what is grumbling? Grumbling is not what your stomach makes, the sound that your stomach makes when you're hungry. <laughs> I know some people have loud, like, what is grumbling? There's this article in Desiring God that says this. Grumbling is the sound unheard in heaven. Is the heart shaking its head, rolling its eyes, cursing under its breath. It is the seemingly harmless exhale of several respectable sins. Why, why is it respectable? Because we don't see them as sins. What are these sins? Ingratitude, thanklessness, discontent. What else is grumbling? It's a controlled rage. Have you done that to your parents? After they, you know, after they discipline you, you go to your room and you start it. You can't yell because they'll hear it, <laughs> right? So it's a controlled rage. You do that with your, with your wife, right? Every time your wife, can you clean the kitchen? <laughs> but then you answer back, okay, dear. Controlled rage, an itchy contempt, a muffled echo of Satan's dismay. 
a broken tune. It can be voiced out in a sigh or strangle a praise. It is the cough of a sick heart. Mm. <laughs> so grumbling is not just, you know, no, it's anger, it's a rage inside of us. But you try to control it because you don't want the person that you're grumbling against to hear it. But it's a sign, it's a symptom of a sick heart. First um, Corinthians 10, 9 11 talks about it as well. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did as they were destroyed by serpents. So first, don't put Christ to the test, and then don't grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Then verse 11 says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. So the grumbling of the Israelites is put there for a reason, for us to learn from it. And for us to also see the bitterness in our hearts. That grumbling kind of shows. It's a symptom of that bitterness. Right? So now, what are we supposed to learn from this? Isn't it ironic that the first recorded grumble in the Bible is from God's own people? And it's right after they got rescued from the Egyptians miraculously through the Red Sea. Isn't it ironic? Paul says that these things were written down for our instruction. So what can we learn? We're all God's people here, I hope. If you're not a Christian, you're not a part of this. <laughs> this is only for God's grumbling people. So if you're, if you're not a Christian, grumble all you want. It's all good. <laughs> but for God's people, doesn't it look weird? And they're still grumbling after all they went through, after all they've seen, they're still grumbling. What can we learn from them? First, God's providence can sometimes be bitter for our taste, but better for our testimony. God's providence can sometimes be bitter for our taste, but better for our testimonies. So sometimes God allows us and even leads us to bitter experiences so that our testimony about his goodness to help us may become even bolder. Right? I hope so. If, if the bitterness of the situation does not lead to a bitterness in, in you, it should lead to gratitude, right? And when you have gratitude, it erupts in praise. And so your testimony will become bolder about how God was good to get you out of whatever situation you were in, right? Whatever bitter situation you were in. So Paul, when he said that in 2 Corinthians, um, he's defending himself. Or sorry, if you go to 2 Corinthians, uh, verse 11, um, Paul is trying to defend his apostleship uh, to the Corinthian church uh, about he is uh, a more qualified apostle than those who are claiming to be apostles back then in the Corinthian Corinthian church who uh, turned out to be fake apostles, right? So Paul, when he, did, when he does this, when he's trying to defend his apostleship, he, he does it as a fool. If you guys read that uh, uh, chapter, he does it as a fool. So Paul says, well, yeah, I'm better at them because I'm a Hebrew. I'm this, I'm learned, I'm blah, 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 blah. 
I do more, I do more than these people. So he, he, he boasted about his uh, skills and his attributes when he was defending his apostleship to the Corinthian church. Okay? But not only that, he also boasted about his sufferings and his weaknesses. Check out uh, 11, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27. Are they servants of Christ talking about the false apostles? I'm a better one. Right? I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more. Okay, This is where he gets into the, he's not just boasting about his skills. He's also boasting about his weaknesses and his struggles and his sufferings. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. So he's saying, I'm a better apostle than you because I was in prison most. Okay, far more imprisonments, far more, or with countless beatings and often near death. I got beat up more than you. I'm a better apostle than you. What else? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at See, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and, and exposure. So when he is boasting about his, this is his testimony, he's boasting about his abilities as an apostle. He also boasts about his sufferings, his hardship. He highlighted that. Right? Why? Not to boast in his capacity to overcome suffering, but in order to highlight God's calling and goodness as far as his apostleship is concerned. That's his testimony. In the next chapter, if you read chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes mention of these weaknesses again. This time saying, the grace of God is made perfect in my weakness. That's why Paul boasts even more about his weaknesses. So when he talks about getting beaten, getting stranded, getting lashed, are those all sweet experiences? No, they're bitter. But he boasts about them. Why? Because it it puts a dark background on the highlight of God's goodness. Right? If everything was just white and bright, you wouldn't see it as clearly, the, the goodness of God. If you put it against a dark background, then you'll see it more. So that's what Paul is doing there. Look at this. I suffered, but even though... God is still good. I boast in my weakness because in my weakness, God showed his strength. Right? I've always envied those uh, people, those Christians whose faith testimonies have brought them from total darkness to light. You know those testimonies? I used to be a murderer, but now I'm a Christian. I actually spoke to somebody this week about that. I used to be a criminal, but now I'm a Christian. Somebody knows who I talked to. I used to be this. Now I'm a Christian. Why is that so amazing to us? 
Because we like that. We like those kinds of stories, right? Underdog stories. <laughs> we love those. Right? They're so weak, but they still won. That's why David and Goliath was such a great story. Right? Because their testimonies are more vibrant because of what they went through. The bitterness that they went through. I feel that those testimonies, just like the Apostle Paul's, highlight the goodness of God even more. Now, that's not to say that testimonies like mine, which is boring, okay? I'm, I wasn't a criminal. The worst that I did was steal candy from a store. That's, that's the worst, right? I didn't kill anybody, right? But that doesn't say that my testimony is boring or less significant, right? Ultimately, everyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ is significantly celebrated in heaven and on earth. And every believer's testimony is important in accomplishing the Great Commission. But the more we endure trials and sufferings by faith that lead to more gratitude and joy in God's salvation, the more our testimonies can become more bold and more vibrant. That's why I like listening to old Christians' testimonies. When they tell their story of what they had to go through, right, as Christians. I like listening to Nani Jerry, uh, Nani Becca, Sister Vessi. They're all in their 80s, 90s. Some of them are gone. But when you listen to their testimonies, it's like, what? You went through all of that? And you're still here? You made it through like 80 something? It's more vibrant. But it's, when you hear the content, it's like, man, that's a lot of suffering. Pastor Luis, when he, he keeps telling me about his uh, early pastorate in the Philippines where he had to walk, he has no food, he had to take the jeepney. And I'm like, what? I have a car. <laughs> it makes our testimonies more vibrant if the bitterness of the situation didn't make you bitter. So even though the nation of Israel has gone through wave after wave of conquering nations, right? Slavery, Holocaust, God's provision for them during these hard times have never failed. And his specific future promises for them as a nation will be fulfilled in the future. So knowing this, the Israelites uh, have this hope, right? But they had to go through these testimonies first. Or sorry, not testimonies, the bitter experiences first. Right? Every believer's testimony is like that. And the more we endure, the more we can have a more bolder uh, testimony to testify about God's goodness. That's the first thing. Second, journey to growth should lead to gratitude instead of grumbling if we believe in God's goodness. Key word there is belief. The journey to growth should lead to gratitude instead of grumbling if we believe in God's goodness. God's faithfulness to be good and to show goodness to the Israelites is mentioned all over Scripture, okay, if you read your Bible. And even though the nation of Israel has gone through wave after wave of conquering nations, God has always provided for them, right? And they, even now, still cling to the hope and continue to believe that God will fulfill his promises to them. So we should have the same confidence as part of God's people. Check out Romans 5, 1 to 5. You guys read this part.
So, journey to growth, I mean, that leads us through this journey. If the bitterness does not lead to your own bitterness, and it leads to gratitude, right? that gratitude comes because we believe in God's goodness. When you say believe, that means you're hoping for it. It's not here yet. Okay. You might be facing bitter situations right now, but if you believe in God's goodness, that bitterness in the situation won't make you bitter. Why? Because you're looking forward to something better. right? In the case of in Romans 5, it says there that these sufferings we should embrace, we should rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because it produces something in us. What's that something? Character, steadfastness, and ultimately hope. So don't expect like God to just answer your prayers just like that. Because he's not trying to just answer your prayers just to give you whatever it is that you're asking for. He's trying to build up your faith, right? And that faith is strong if you have hope. If you don't have hope, then that faith is useless, right? Hope is just a future faith, right? When we say, I hope, it means that I believe, this is for Christians, I believe that God will do this in the next two days or in the next 10 years or in the next whatever. But he's not... Because obviously, when you're experiencing bitter uh, situations right now, he's not doing it right then and there. Right? But when you have hope, which is a buildup of your you know, stronger character, right? Uh, that hope is a future expectation of God's goodness. Right? So it's not like he's, he's just going to answer your prayer. Some, some prayers are answered right away, even before you ask for it. Right? But sometimes it takes a while. But in that, in doing that, uh, hopefully, it doesn't make you better, especially towards God. Because if that's what happens, if, if the bitterness inside of you, or sorry, the bitterness of your situation affects bitterness inside, or it makes you bitter inside, then there's no hope. Right? You'll just be a bitter person. You'll be a bitter believer, and I don't think there's such a thing shouldn't be a bitter believer right so Romans says Paul says embrace it because in, in that bitter situation God is actually strengthening you even more that strengthening is strengthening of your hope right third God uses suffering to reveal the reality of our idols and restore our faith in him God uses the suffering to reveal the reality of our idols and restore our faith in Him. After God led the people of Israel to the bitter waters of Merah and revealed to the Israelites that the bitterness of water is a reflection of the bitterness that still remains in their hearts, which was made visible by their grumbling, God did not just ignore their complaints. Right? He should have. Right? He should have just said, you know what, I just I gave you water. Why don't you just drink that? Have you seen a uh, bear grills survival guy? 
he drank um, pool water. Have you ever seen that? Bear Grylls. This is a show about survival. If you get stuck in a desert and you have no water, what are you supposed to drink? You can drink your pee. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. They, he, he showed it. To survive, you need something, right? You can drink that. And he even drained water from camel's uh, uh, poop. Uh, drank it. Because you need something to survive at then and there. In the story of the Israelites, when God said, uh, when they said, we're, we're thirsty, here you go, water. Yeah, it's bitter. Uh, there's some people saying it's not healthy. Some commentators are saying it's not healthy. I believe, no, I think, I think it, it'll get them through. Because what's coming after that? What's coming out? Where, where did God lead them after Mara? To Elam. Twelve springs of water. Palm trees everywhere, like a resort. Right? All they had to do was drink this for now. Trust in God that he will be good. Drink this and you will see how faithful he is. But even in their grumbling, listen, here's the thing. I was talking to my wife about this. Coming here. Who here has uh, loans that they need to pay for? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying. You're lying. Okay. When you have loans to pay for, a lot of them, they come with interest. Some of us are lucky. No interest. That's why we keep on borrowing even more. Uh, but mostly they have interest. Sometimes the interest is high. I remember during the recession, it was 19%, 20%. Now it's like six, seven. You buy a car, 1.9, <laughs> right? Some people, they even grumble at the payment of the interest. I was talking about, we were talking about this. So when you think about that, first of all, you got a loan because you didn't have money to pay for whatever it is that you need to pay for, right? That's why you got a loan, because if you had money, you just pay for it cash. So God, in his grace, here you go. You got approved for a loan. There's interest. Pay for that. That's the cost of the loan. Why would you grumble about paying interest? Meanwhile, God already gave you, not just approval for the loan, give you a job to pay for your monthly payments for the loan and the interest. But no. Oh, Lord, the interest is so. Can't we just be happy and content to be like, oh, God provided. Yeah, it's through a loan, but he provided. Yeah, it's bitter water. It's still water. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And no, we, we want everything. We want the cake and eat it too. We want all of it. We want loan with no interest. We want loan we don't have to pay back. We want loan. <laughs> it's so late. Because I, I, I see it in myself too, right? He already gave you all of this stuff and you're still not happy. Like, But even in that, even in the grumbling, what did God do? He redeemed the water. Right? So you grumbled, I gave you water. 
yeah, it's bitter, but it, it can get you. Just trust me. I'll get you to Elim, the next stop. Just trust me with Mara water. They couldn't. They grumbled. So God, instead of just saying, you know what, I should give you nothing. No, he had mercy. Redeemed even the water. He redeemed the water. If you think about that, man. One commentary said the, 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 the great part about this story about the Mara water was not the fact that God turned bitter water into sweet. The fact that God uh, had the mercy to turn bitter water into sweet. Because he could have just said, you know what, forget you guys. I should just let you die in the desert. No. God showed them mercy. An act of mercy, if you don't know the definition of mercy, an act of mercy is defined as withholding something from someone who is deserving of it. So if you have anger towards somebody, mercy is to withhold anger from somebody who's deserving of your anger. If you contrast that with grace, grace is defined as giving something to someone who is not deserving. So in a sense, God gave them, not just show them mercy, but mercy and grace. Right? When God led the people of Israel to the bitter waters of Marah, He showed them mercy. First of all, by leading them there. But because the water was bitter, God also revealed in them a bitterness in their heart that God needed to remove. Then after that, after their grumbling, God showed them mercy again. This time accompanied by grace by giving them clean water, sweet water. For what? To get them to the place, to get them to Elim. Right? God does that to us now. Sometimes, yeah. Right? Ever experienced that? New job? You guys get when you get a new job? So excited. Yes, new job. Then after two weeks, Lord, why did you give me this job? the worst job I've ever had. Wait, you asked for the job. <laughs> he gave it to you. Now you're still grumbling? You asked for it. When you asked for a loan to the God, please let my loan get approved by the bank. Boom, approved. Crying next thing you know, next month. What? What is this 1.99? There's interest? But God is still good. He still gives us what we need, even though we continue to grumble. And God is so good that he even gave them some kind of safety space. What did God do? After grumbling, he showed them mercy at the waters of Mara uh, by giving them clean water. And then after that, showed them grace and mercy again by giving them what? Giving them statutes and a rule. You read that? This is the, before the Ten Commandments, there was already a rule. What was the rule? What was the statute and the rule? Lord made them uh, in verse, se uh, which verse is this? 25. Then the Lord made them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear 
to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Why is this a grace and mercy? Why is the statutes and rules a grace and mercy? The way I see it is this. God fenced them in with these statutes and rules. So they know you, you pass this, you're going beyond where you're supposed to go. It's not good for you. Stay here. Stay here where grace and mercy lives. Don't move out. Stay here. Because this is where you will live. Because I will help you. Right? For a lot of Christians, those rules is like a jail cell. You're withholding something from me, God. There's stuff beyond this wall of statutes and rules that you have put that I can't reach because you're withholding something from me. No, he's not. He's trying to protect you. He's trying to make sure that you have everlasting, eternal joy instead of misery and bitterness outside of those statutes and rules. That's why you should, when, when God said, you know, you should be careful with your money. Don't stop, stop borrowing and stop using your credit cards and, you know, be good stewards of your money. God's trying to save you from misery. Save you from bitterness. Why? Why do we borrow money anyway? Because we buy stuff we can't afford. So you borrow. Then you spend your lifetime paying for it. But God said, no, 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 it's okay to borrow. Just be good stewards of it. If you have to pay interest, then that's on you. We needed the money. I gave it to you. I gave you a job. Borrow it. Stop complaining. Just be thankful. Stop grumbling. But if you want to make life easier for you, stay within these statutes. Read the Bible on how to handle handle money. Read the Bible on how to, you know, watch your diet and and, uh, take care of your physical body. Read that. It won't be hard because that's what, what we're made for. God made us to be this way, right? We just need to stay within his statutes and his rules, right? So even after grumbling, uh, God gave them statutes, walls to provide safety for them because apart from God, they will die. It is only in the presence of God that they have life. And God in his mercy provided them with a protective wall around them. Statutes and rules to keep them in. And he's going to give them even more, right? As we continue the journey, Ten Commandments, right? The Decalogue. So it's ordered to keep them in, to prevent them from wandering, and to protect them from the dangers of the outside world. They just have to stay within these walls and within the presence of God. And then what happens after their experience at Mara? They end up in Elam. Elam is like a resort again, 12 streams of water. Look at the numbers 12 streams, 70 palm trees. (laughs) If you know your numbers, you know what those means. But anyway, he led them there and they stayed there. Now, if you know the story, Israelites have a tendency to settle, right? If you were in Elam, would you leave? No, God, stay here. God's like, no, 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 no. 
I have something even better for you in the promised land. Same with us. Sometimes we get comfortable with our Christian lives that we just tend to just, yeah, I know enough. I know enough about God. I know that He saved. I know I believe in God. A lot of people say that, right? I believe in God. You don't need to share the gospel to me. I believe in God. You ask them, so who's the God that you believe? They don't know. <laughs> I just believe in a God. I believe in a higher power, higher being. That's not who God is. God, God revealed himself to us. He's knowable. Do you know the God that you say you believe? You should. Otherwise, there's no growth. It's easy to say I believe in something, uh, and then you grow uh, in relation to that, whatever that something is. But you make your own God and say, oh, God only wants me to go to church on Sundays. God only wants me to pray for my food every time I eat. That's it. That's all that God is. That's the God that I believe. He doesn't want me to give all my money to the church. No, 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 no. He wants me to buy stuff. He wants me to borrow because he will help me pay for it. That's the God that I believe. Is that the God? In... No, it's not. Get to know God of the Bible. Help you overcome bitter situations. It help you and prevent you from being bitter yourself. Right? The Christian life is about growth. And when there is growth, there is change. And when there is change, there is pain and suffering. That is bitter to the taste. But let us always remember God is good, even in the bitterness. So prayer for everybody here today is don't let the bitterness of life lead to a bitterness towards God. And how do you know that you're becoming bitter? You grumble. And some of you are probably grumbling already. This message is taking so long. Why is it taking so long? <laughs> but that's, a, that's the test. Test yourself. What do you grumble about? Why are you grumbling? Has God not provided for you? Has he, has he, has he come short? I don't think so. He's never, he never comes short. Always remember that God is able to use the most bitter times in our lives to strengthen our faith and bring us into a deeper, more lasting joy in it. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be great. And be gracious unto you. And be gracious. Gracious, gracious.